welcome to Dead House. I am Dylan. I am Nathan, and we are once again recording at my house. Yes, it's become almost a new staple. It's like back and forth these days. Yes, just like a child of divorce. Yes. <laughs> oh, that is home. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's quite nice. Yeah, well, we're recording because it's, it's morning and your parents aren't morning yeah. people. Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and uh, I stopped by Zarav's to get the, the usual uh, pre-pod coffee and the drive through was hella backed up, <laughs> so I went to Stella Rossa and got a large vanilla latte, and I can confirm it is quite nice. Very good, very good. Might have a new contender for the new coffee spot when we record. I mean, speaking of new contender, do you want to talk about a movie that we watched? Just a brief, oh, a brief uh, sort of re- re- spoiler-free review of a movie we watched on Friday night that I think you hated, right? <laughs> I... Want to tell as many people as I can about this movie, but I want to take your advice where I don't just fanboy about a film and then they're disappointed when they watch it. Mm-hmm. But yes, we saw the the new supernatural horror film Talk to Me from Danny and Michael Philippou, the Australian twins. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to to you when we left the cinema, it's a bold statement and I stand by it. It might be my favourite film of the past 20 years. Yeah, that oh, that's a hella expectation to set for people. Yeah. But I, I agree, almost. Okay. Like, okay. I agree that it is a very good movie. Yeah. But I can't agree that it's the best in the last 20 years. Okay. I, I looked up like horror, horror movies that came out in the last 20 years. Yeah, And yeah. I was looking through the list and although a lot of good ones came up, it's like, were a lot of these better than Talk To Me? I don't know. Mm. Well, I mean, a lot of the ones we've talked about on this pod, like... The Witch, Hereditary, and It Follows. Like, I love those, but this just ticked all the boxes for me. Like, it was well shot. It had good characters. Like, a lot of the kind of aspects of the film, like what it's about, appeal to me in general, whereas mm-hmm. you're not a big kind of Super ghost guy. Man. So, Well, yeah, in terms of like in terms of ghosts, I like this because it wasn't a standard like haunted house movie. Because I, I don't, it's not like I hate ghost movies. I mm. hate the typical haunted house movies because yeah, okay. they're all like kind of the same and they yeah, follow the same structure. For Whereas sure. this was like an interesting idea like used to get the ghosts, quote unquote ghosts, into the story. Mm, yeah. And yeah, it's also an Australian film. So that yeah. ticks all your boxes. And Very I relatable. Redeems a lot of my misgivings that I usually have for Australian cinema. Mm. Usually it's a bit hit or miss, but this was very good. And the fact that it was the guys from Raka Raka who <laughs> just make like horror comedy videos of Ronald McDonald slaughtering people. It was it was cool to see uh, that evolution. And um, the fact that they were picked up by like A24 and like it had its premiere at Sundance. Like mm. that's just sick to see just two boys from Adelaide but make it's it. It's just another case of like, you know, up and coming mm. new directors that just hit it out of the ballpark with horror. Yeah, yeah, you know, the for new, sure. The new Jordan Peele. I definitely feel like the 2010s onward has seen just breakout directors with their debuts in like the horror genre. Mm. And I'm all for it. Moral of the story, uh, definitely go watch it while it's out in cinemas. And yes. If, if not, just watch it when it comes out. Hopefully it gets put onto all the streaming platforms mm-hmm. so everyone can watch it. Yes, we implore our listeners to check out Talk To Me. Support that horror genre, support that Australian cinema. This is a cool episode. This is an important episode. It's our 20th, 20th episode of this podcast. Good. So uh, we're making good headway. We're picking up a few (laughs) listeners and we've had some some fun and... uh, Sorting out the kinks we usually uh, have in the episodes. Ironing out the creases. However, I am nervous for my parents to hear this episode. Why is that? Oh, 
Especially so, <laughs> because today we are discussing Stephen King film adaptations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Coming off the back of It and The Shining. Yes. Definitely if, made sense. If uh, you haven't worked it out before listening to this, then uh, shame on you. <laughs> we kind of spoon fed it to you. Yes. It's like when we did Creature Features and we had... What, Jaws, Jaws and The Ritual? Well, okay, like, but The Ritual is... I, I can see them not getting it from that. Yeah, but yeah. It and The Shining. Less of a tie-in because it's like a folklore, kind of like mythological creature. But mm. Yeah, so this one, um, pretty obvious, but uh, we've got a few films here that we enjoy that we wanted to discuss, but we specifically did whole episodes on The Shining and the It remakes mm. because there's a lot to go in with those specific ones, and they're probably our favourites, I dare say, of the ones... Uh, I would, yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the reason I'm nervous for the folks to hear this is because, as I've mentioned on this pod before, they're big Stephen King fans, and uh, obviously I've only read like two of his <laughs> novels, so I won't be able to make too many parallels between the the film adaptations and the stories in this episode. That's okay. I mean, that that's kind of good. So then we're coming coming to these movies just from a pure movie point of view. We don't have sure. the book background to like, I don't know, either carry it if it's a shit movie I like or, the pun anyway, uh, not that carries a shit movie uh, or you know pull it down if it was a shit book yeah exactly so we're just looking at this for well just from like what we enjoyed yeah as a screen adaptation because a lot of the times there's a lot of liberties taken from the filmmaker and they'll change things drastically like the end like we discussed in The Shining yeah so, uh, you know whether that makes it better or worse we will never know because <laughs> we've not read the book but uh, one day but that's all right. Um, we are going to be excluding uh, It and The Shining because we've already discussed them uh, at great length. And also mm-hmm. Pet Cemetery. The yeah. the original is probably one of my favourite Stephen King film adaptations. But because we sort of uh, went into that a fair bit and the remake in uh, the remakes episode, uh, I think we'll, we'll leave that out. I think we made our thoughts on that clear. Yeah, yeah. So... I guess I had like an early exposure to Stephen King growing up because my parents were always reading it and telling me about the stories. And then because they were fans, I was lucky enough to see a lot of the films at a young age. Mm -hmm. So I think I probably showed a few to you and and some of our friends at like all nighters and things. And um, yeah, I think we saw a few in the movies like It and Pet Cemetery and things like that. So what, what would you say your exposure to to the king world was very limited like my father is a reader he, he reads a fair amount he's a like fast reader he can go i think he went camping the other weekend and got through like three books in a weekend i was like fucking hell jesus but he reads more i don't know like what's his name wilbur smith and mm. what's that guy clive cussler like uh, yep. like almost history fiction like yeah. fiction based on his real events okay so he, I don't think, has even ever read a Stephen King book. Okay. My mother's not a big reader. My siblings are not big readers. Mm. So I never read a Stephen King book. And like in terms of movies, I, I didn't see them as, oh, this is a Stephen King movie. It's just like, oh, this is a movie. Mm. Oh, I guess it was based on some book by Stephen King. Yeah. Just a lot of the ideas, I guess, are, are unique or just compelling in like the characters that he creates in these like horror worlds. Yeah. But and I mean he's one of the most prolific horror writers of our time. I mean you got people like Clive Barker of course. Mm-hmm. Um he did like Hellraiser, Hellraiser and and Candyman and whatnot, but um definitely in terms of like his uh like the amount of content that King has created and like dabbling in film. Yeah. Uh, he's he's definitely got a a finger in many pies, which is funny because I was looking up a list of just his books or yeah. even his movies 
oh, like movies based on his books. Mm. There are a surprising amount that just aren't horror. Like he does, way, oh, yeah. he does a lot of not horror books than I than I thought. Like yeah, yeah. Stand by Me. Well, yeah, watch, watch, watch that in English. Classic. In uh, I had to do like an assignment on it in grade ten. Mm. Didn't realize that was Stephen King. That was one of my favorite, based on a short short film. Uh, yeah, short, short story. Sorry, The Body. I think. Yeah, that was one of my one of my favorite uh, films growing up. I just love those like coming of age films. Yeah, like we mentioned, I think in it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, of course, uh, like The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile. Like, it's, yeah. it's not always horror, but it's always kind of supernatural stories, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also a lot of like TV shows and miniseries that I really enjoy. Like I think one of my favorite miniseries I've ever seen is Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, which is adapted from a novel he wrote, where a guy discovers like a portal in like a diner that allows him to time travel back to the sixties, mm-hmm. uh, and he can stop the assassination of JFK. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that was James Franco as the the lead role, which is surprisingly, yeah, surprisingly good. <laughs> He's a very divisive actor. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And um, also, The Outsider was like a more recent kind of novel he did, but Ben Mendelsohn as the lead role in that was sick. Don't think I've ever heard of that one. That one is, uh, I, I think they tie in loosely with the being that is it. Okay. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's more so... Um, lean towards in the book than the show. It's only kind of implied in the show. But there's another show that I've only seen the first season of it called Castle Rock, which is like this town in Maine that King created. And it's really interesting because it takes all these places and characters and events that he's created over his like entire bibliography um, and intertwines them. So you'll see like characters from It, characters from misery characters from pet cemetery like all in this town and in the town there'll be shops like needful things and stuff like that like it's <laughs> that really sounds really cool. weird <laughs> yeah i know it's it's a cool concept because he's created this entire universe that obviously you know has been adapted into to films and it's had countless sequels and shows based mm. upon them i just think that's really sick mm. also yeah. i just want to interject i forgot to say before the only i have read a stephen king thing i think the only thing i've read was uh, one of the short stories called Dolan's Cadillac. Oh, okay. So there you go. I have read at least one thing, Stephen King. I don't think I've even heard of that. It was in, I, f- I found a book somewhere. I have no idea where the fuck it was hmm. of just like a compendium of short stories he had. Yeah. And that was the first one. And so therefore was the only one I managed to finish uh, okay. before I stopped reading it. But yeah, I think they also adapted that into a movie. You want to say maybe 2013 or something? I would say that Pretty much everything he's written, whether it's a novel or a novella um, or short story, has been adapted in some way. <laughs> They're oh, leaving no yeah, stone surely. unturned in his career. They're just waiting for him to write more and just be like, yep, get that cash cow running. And yeah, a bit of background on King. Like, Carrie was his first novel uh, published when he was just 26, our age. Oh, that makes me feel like shit. Yeah, and it was adapted into a film two years later. So he was lucky enough to have his first novel become a movie and a successful one at that. Yeah, damn. And apparently, um, about that, he was paid $2,500 for the rights. (laughs) And in hindsight, people have said, like, he's been ripped off, but he just remains grateful that he was able to have his, like, at least the the film aspect of his career kick-started from his first published book. Yeah, it's it's definitely something to look back on in hindsight, because, like, oh, yeah, 2500 bucks for, you know... Carrie, which went on to be like a pretty good popular movie. Mm. But also, if he didn't take that deal, then there's every chance that he wouldn't have got another shot. And it pretty much like springboarded his career mm. so that 
every one of his works has been adapted to this point. And he yeah. went on to make fucking millions and millions of dollars, I'm sure. Yeah. And I mean, they remade it, I think, I want to say 2013. I've not seen it. But mm. uh, then again, like we mentioned this in one of the other episodes, they're remaking almost all of the Stephen King films <laughs> from like the 80s and 90s. Yeah, it's just cyclical. They're like, oh, it's been a long, been like mm. enough time. Let's redo this movie. Like, but they're not great and like they haven't learned <laughs> i think like it just makes money because people remember like the story or the original they're, just, and they're like oh they're i want to see this again. nostalgia yeah yeah but uh so carrie was published in 1974 but then the film was released in 1976 carrie was directed by brian de palma and written by lawrence d cohen uh starring sissy spacek in a famous career launching role yeah oscar and, nominated yeah and john travolta for some reason <laughs> who the hell did he play i can't remember his name but he, there's this very confusing car sex scene where <laughs> he's like making out with this chick in his class and then she like pushes him away and then like pulls him close and starts making out again pushes him away and he's like what the fuck do you want <laughs> and he's like ready to like backhand her or like leave her there in the car and then she starts like going down on him like what the fuck i i could not understand the scene i was laughing Talk about mixed signals i know it was uh it was rough and i mean a budget of 1.8 million and made 33.8 at the box office so but but that's 1.8 million in 70s money yeah that's true so um and i mean a lot of the like production in it there's like some you know like explosions or fires uh there's in terms of set design there's like blood being thrown everywhere but Mm -hmm. a lot of that could have been done relatively cheaply because it all would have been practical as well yeah in that time um and i mean it's it's simple as it looks like in the film a bucket of blood dumped on a girl you know they probably just use like what what do they use corn syrup and red food monkey blood (laughs) (laughs) um and then, yeah, everything else is just, like, atmosphere or when she, like, starts moving things with a mind. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure it would have just been simple things like stuff on strings or magnets. Like, or just a guy crashing his bike. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, I-, I can definitely see um, how they could have made such a high-quality film with that small a budget. Yeah. And, um, it's all just in the location and, like, the actual technique of it like they have to pay for the film and shit yeah it's interesting too noting that Stephen king almost scrapped that story he was like partway through writing it um decided he didn't like it anymore and his wife was like no 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 finish it it's really good having like a strong female like kind of hero character in a way like you you empathize with her but because she's like she discovers through puberty that she's got this like telekinesis or this ability to move things with her mind but because she's bullied and has these like horrific things happen to her. She can't control it. Mm-hmm. And she's got this like overbearing sort of like religious fanatic mother. It just like gets out of control and she like inadvertently hurts people with it. It It's kind of like you take the role of the protective gym teacher of like seeing that she's just a confused girl mm-hmm. um, with no friends. And yeah, I, I kind of like that about it. It's like this, this real tragedy. It's definitely tragic. I wouldn't go so far as to call her a hero though. She's... Uh... No, yeah, that was the wrong word. Yeah. <laughs> One of the, the things I wanted to mention um, just before we, we move on uh, from this film is there's like an end scene where Carrie snaps and she uses her mind to throw all these kitchen knives at her mother. Mm-hmm. And her mother gets pinned to this door frame in like the position of Jesus Christ on the cross. Yep. And it's just this slow zoom out with her like that and all these lit candles behind her that's just really sick. It just kind of like lingers on that shot. Now, do you mean pinned 
around her or is like Michael Myers style pinned to the wall with knives? Yeah, like her hands are stuck to the door frame with oh, knives okay. in them. Like it's, full on crucifixion. Yeah, okay. it's, it's really sick. And there's another really nice shot in this film that I enjoyed where it's like a wide shot of her and her mother at the dinner table and there's this like backdrop behind them of The Last Supper mm-hmm. and there's these two candles lit on the table and Carrie says something that makes her mother like pick up her drink and splash on her face <laughs> and it like douses the... Oh, sorry, it extinguishes the flames of the candles mm-hmm. but it's still that single shot so it's the same frame, it just goes dark and you can see their <laughs> silhouettes while they keep talking. Really nicely done. Very good. Yeah, but uh, I mean apart from that it's not like a super technical film. There's like a moment near the end where she snaps in the school hall at the prom and there's like split screen um, which is kind of cool but yeah, other than that it's just a really like harrowing story. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be the most iconic scene of that movie for sure. Like, mm. when people think of Carrie, they think of the prom scene where she gets drenched in blood and then she just causes fire and yeah. that one dude gets, like, electrocuted. Yeah. Being, I, being spoofed and parodied in all sorts of other movies. Yeah. I mean, even, like, um, the opening scene where it's just, like, nude teen girls <laughs> in, like, a locker room and then Carrie has her first period in the shower. I was like, I wonder if they could have gotten away with calling it first period. <laughs> it's like oh, a God. pun. Oh, it is a said school in school. Pun. I was oh, like, that's, oh, that's, that's no, fucking that's awful. in poor taste. Yeah. I also, um, I also want to say too that like in terms of influential stuff in this movie, the mm. it was kind of, not, I don't know, one of the first, but I know Friday the 13th is like the people who made that, the Cunningham man, uh, cited this as like copying the final scare from the end, like when she yeah. reaches out of the grave. Yeah, like, with yeah. Her hand. So that's another thing to note where this mm. is just another one of those old horror movies that either created or perpetuated that um, trope yeah, that Scream made fun of. Yeah, no, I like that. Shall we move along to the next film? What is the uh, next film? Christine. Christine. 1983. You gave it a mention last episode. Yeah, see, this is a film that I couldn't remember if I had seen before or not, so I rewatched it for this pod, and I, I had because I remembered some scenes from it. This was directed by my boy John Carpenter mm-hmm. and written by Bill Phillips. Uh, it was starring Keith Gordon, John Stockwell, and Harry Dean Stanton, the uh, first victim from Alien. He's the, the guy with the cap on in the cool room. Like, looks up... Oh, the first victim other than John Hurt and Alien? Oh, other than John Hurt. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He, sorry. Yeah, he's yeah. the first victim. <laughs> yeah. Who, yeah. Does he, who does he play in Christine? Uh, he plays the detective. Oh, shit. Okay, yeah. Cool. I yeah, like which, was, which was cool. Yeah. This was made on a budget of $9.7 million, 15% of which went to the cars. I was about to say how much <laughs> of that went to them fucking destroying cars. Yeah. Uh, I think they bought 24 cars uh, and used like parts of them to create 17 models for filming. Oh my. And what was it? It was a Plymouth Fury, I think it was called? Uh, yeah, 1958 Plymouth Fury, which I think is different to the book because I think... I've not read the book, but I, I read that like technically he was incorrect when King wrote it because he said the car they had was a sedan. And apparently, like that actual car was a two door. Okay, so I don't know. well, that, I, I, was, I did I did read that he chose like specifically that car because it was like a forgotten car, like it wasn't yeah. like a Pontiac Firebird where everyone knew about it. it wasn't a Trans Am. Mm. It was like this really nice, cool, classic car that had sort of been forgotten about, similar to what Christine is in the movie. Yeah, and it made twenty one million at the box office, so just over double. Not bad at all. Mm. And interestingly, they used like rubber molds with hydraulics under the bonnet 
to kind of like pull the hood down and like crumple it in. And then they just reverse that in editing. That is so cool. Yeah. Like see, the fact that they can do those shots practically back in the day mm. of a car being essentially well, repairing itself. Yeah. And it's just, it's real. Well, that was more technical than I suspected because when I watched it, I was like, oh, I wonder if they just had like a plastic molds <laughs> and they melted it with like heat lamps or something and then just reverse that in editing. I think, nah, because that'd look too, like you'd see it melting. Yeah. And this doesn't really melt, does yeah, it? It just, just like, it reforms. panel beats itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it does that a few times in the film. So uh, I can imagine how many of those cars they would have gone through because obviously you could only use that shot once because once it's... Um, crumpled you know it's fucked so yep. yeah but uh, and interestingly that I've said that too many times this episode <laughs> we really could make a drinking game out of that yep uh, shot in a 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio significantly uh, wide for uh, an early 80s film and I presume it was chosen to fit like the body length of the car so you get those really nice shots and a really cool soundtrack like very rockabilly Oh, yeah. Rock and roll yeah. soundtrack. And an eerie score, which of course was uh, partly composed by the man himself, John, John Carpenter. Carpenter. And uh, I did notice some of the similar, I don't know if it was the exact same sound effects, but like similar effects like used in the Halloween franchise. Um, well, I think it was filmed on the same street, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I did like get that vibe of the big wide roads with the the old um, like maple trees or mm. whatever, like on the, on the curbs. Just suburban houses. Um, and really intimidating characters with some tense interactions. Yeah, in terms of like the bullies and yeah, stuff like that. Some Holocaust language in this film. <laughs> what do they call him? Uh, Cuntingham or something? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's... Uh, Creative. Yeah, yes, very original. And uh, I, I very much enjoy this film. I don't think it's regarded as one of the better adaptations of a King story. Not a whole lot happens. It's just this guy that's being affected by this car and he just kind of becomes obsessed with it and becomes this like moody, like rude Rebel. person. And um, yeah, eventually it leads to his downfall. Yeah. I mean, I think it's biggest problem in the movie is as bad as it sounds, the premise, like yeah, if you boil it down, it's a killer car. Mm. Like that's kind of wacky to, to make a book slash movie out of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Like the whole obsession aspect of it, where the more, time he spends with the car and fixing it up the like sort of more deluded he gets into mm. thinking it's a real woman which i mean in his mind it is yeah yeah see you saying that reminds me of the scene when he first sees christine like reform mm-hmm. because he's like all right show me what yeah. you can do and then you've got like this seductive like sultry <laughs> music playing as it reforms kind of like a strip tease yeah oh, god i thought like as kind of cringy as that is um i thought that was sick <laughs> Because it just shows, it's like, yeah, a, a, an embodiment of that, like, infatuation with a car that almost becomes, like, this borderline, like, sexual relationship <laughs> with a fucking car. Yeah, well, I mean, throughout the movie, there's the constant, because he's got a girlfriend in the movie, there's the constant, like, yeah. jealousy of her, of this car. Mm. It's like, I think she even says, like, I'm supposed to be jealous of another woman, not a car. Even when he, I think, drops her back home and he gets back in Christine in the driveway and it won't start. Like, he refuses yeah, to start, like, and he's like, like, come on, baby. And then, like, on the third time, it starts, and then it plays that song that I think has a lyric that goes, no one loves you like I do. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. It's, uh, it's a, yeah, so it's definitely a weird movie. And another thing I think it's got against it in my eyes is I don't think they spend enough time with 
Arnie as a likable character in the beginning. Mm. Like he's he's a pitiful character. He gets bullied and he has some sort of like moments of sincerity, but so quickly in the movie he just becomes an asshole. Like immediately as That's soon as true. he gets Christine, then he's immediately a jackass. I yeah. I would have liked it better if he gets it and he slowly turns into this asshole. Like mm. you sort of see glimpses of him changing instead of one scene he's Arnie, some nerdy fuck. Yeah. And <laughs> Coming from a nerdy fuck, so I'm allowed to say. <laughs> uh, and then the next, literally the next scene you see him, he's like a complete asshole. Yeah, that's true. And it is quite sudden. Like, it, it'd be good, like you said, if through the interactions, like with his parents or his friend, he like snaps or um, starts swearing more, things like that. But it is quite drastic. Even like the way he looks, like he loses the glasses, he rocks like a black leather jacket. Yeah. And yeah, it's definitely like starts styling his hair, I think. Yeah, well. well, I mean, I'm pretty sure that a lot of that is meant to indicate, like, he's uh, taken on more aspects and appearances of, like, Christine's time. Mm. Like, he's dressing like someone, like some like greaser the from the 50s. Like, I like that. Fucking James Dean and Rebel, with the Call, Rebel Without a Cause. Was that James Dean? Or was that Elvis? Uh, no, that was James Dean. That was James Dean? There yeah. you go. Okay. My mum will appreciate that. <laughs> uh, also, like, so you, you see the opening scene when it's being made, mm-hmm. like the actual car Christine is being made in the 50s. Which I liked that scene. I yeah. think it was just, it was a very clean, just whole sequence. Yeah. And, and like the bonnet slams down on the mechanic's hands and then the other guy's like smoking in there and how does he die? He just Di- like dies somehow. Yep. Yeah. Um, do you reckon, like, I don't know if it's explained at all uh, in the book, but how do you think the car is evil? Uh, okay. You can ask Lee. I'm sure he'll tell you. Yeah. But, I think in the book I read that it is a normal car to start with and then I want to say there is a man who has the car okay. who dies or kills himself and then his spirit goes into the car. Mm, okay, because they say that in the film where it's like the guy who Arnie, the main character, buys like the jalopy off, um, his brother killed himself in the car. Yeah. But the car in the movie is already like possessed when it's being made. From the beginning, yeah. yeah. Whereas I think in the book it's normal until, okay. uh, I can't remember his name, but the guy who has the car, mm. his obsession causes his, him to kill himself and then he becomes the car or his spirit goes into the car, okay. which definitely makes it weird because... Like the love affair. Yeah, the love <laughs> affair with Arnie. No judgment yeah. here. You can love a man car if you want. Yeah, I mean, I probably would have liked that more if that opening scene was like the previous owner committing suicide in the car. As tough as that would have been to watch. <laughs> if it was just him like, you know, breathing in the exhaust streams in a garage or something mm-hmm. and then it cuts to like, you know, 20 years later, I think that would have been... Better, but it is kind of cool seeing it manufactured and while it's on the assembly line, immediately it's evil. Yeah, I kind of I kind of like that more, like, instead of... Because I feel like it's been done with, like, an evil spirit possessing something, mm. whereas just, there's just a car that's made and by pure happenstance, it's just fucking evil. Yeah, that's true. Also, some sick shots in this film, like, when the car's on fire <laughs> and it's, just, like, rams the, the bully's car in the gas station, there's all this, like, the... Uh, montage with the explosions yep. and then the flaming car just driving down the highway like <laughs> runs over the, the bully and you see his flaming body on the road as it speeds off Fairly in the distance good. I think my favourite scene is where Christine has like cornered the slightly chubbier bully and it's like oh, he thinks he's safe because he's yeah. in a slightly thinner alley but then it like destroys itself by like going into that alley and just crushing its sides yeah, yeah. It's, it's like I don't know it just turns into like this 
beast that's like doing anything possible to get its mm. revenge. And I also like the really long shot in like the final showdown when they're in the mechanic mm-hmm. and or in like the the garage, and it's the cars in the dark, like after being totaled. Um, by like just driving around smashing into things when the friends in like the bulldozer protecting the girlfriend and then it like pulls out of the shadows and it's fully reformed again yeah like that was really nice something that i love about um bless Bless you you. (laughs) (laughs) uh something an aspect that i love about like the scenes of christine pretty much getting revenge and killing people is Mm. in those scenes it's got it like windows tinted black and so, for a lot of the movie, it's sort of not outright that it's a haunted car. It's hinted at that mm. it's alive, but you're still not sure if there's Arnie inside it driving. Yeah, Until yeah. the very end when he gets, like, launched out the window. And it's like, okay, well, Arnie's in it at this moment. Mm. So, how many times was he in it beforehand? Or is this the first time he's been in it killing people? That's true, because there's a moment when the car comes back to the, like, mechanic's garage. And the guy, he lets him park it there, thinks he's in it. And he opens mm. the door and there's no one inside. Yeah, because so. he also, like, Arnie had an alibi for, like, the first killing. But mm. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to see, like, okay, how many scenes was Christine out and about driving yeah. without him? That final shot is nice, too, after they've, like, compacted it. And then you just see, like, the grill, like, wilt a little bit. And then yep. the credits roll. Yeah, okay, another that was almost nice. sequel bait, but not mm. really. Just a nice little wink at the end. Yeah, that was cool. Let's move on. What's What's next? Is it... Perhaps another Stephen King movie. It is another Stephen King movie with a woman's name as the title. <laughs> this Why is the misery. fuck am I blanking? So- oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 1990. Yeah, this one, like, I kind of like that as a girl's name. That's that's cool. Yeah, well, I'd, like- I'd never seen this movie before until I watched it. I had to watch all of these movies this week because I'd never probably watched yeah, them before. Yeah, had a marathon. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize that, yeah, Misery was the name of, like, the character of his book. Mm. I, I thought he was just... A miserable situation to be in and that's why they're called it misery yeah yeah it's kind of a cool it's like the name pagan like things like that i just this i've never heard of anyone called pagan okay well if you have a daughter guess what i'm, guess what I'm <laughs> calling it <laughs> uh yeah so misery 1990 um this is the only one from the 90s we've got on our list today this was uh directed by rob rayner who did stand by me yep and, and uh did he also do shawshank Oh, no, that was Frank Darabont. Oh, okay. Frank Darabont, yeah. I knew I put it in my notes somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, um, he did Princess Bride. Oh, cool. Rana, yeah. Yeah, nice. Um, written by William Goldman, um, starring James Cann and Kathy Bates, who okay. actually won an Academy Award for Best Actress in this role. Oh, I could see why. It is absolutely, like, a great performance. Mm. Like, the way she goes from this sweet caring nurse who's just like super happy and excited with life yeah to this just like psychotic fucking woman mm. that's like clearly got several fucking mental <laughs> like problems yeah. fucking bipolar obsession yeah. schizophrenia probably in there somewhere she reminded me a lot of um what's his name joseph in creep it was just that kind of like unpredictable nature yeah and like unnerving friendliness yeah like super nice but then like something behind it mm, yeah except this was definitely more uh like intending to to do harm yeah yeah <laughs> uh yeah and this was uh made on a budget of 20 million dollars and made 61.2 okay 20 million that's that seems like a lot for that's that's for what i movie. thought <laughs> because it's set in like relatively one location yeah with 
minimal effects. I mean, I suppose they had to use a helicopter a couple of times. <laughs> the oh, ca- the car true. crash probably cost a lot. Yeah, because you see it roll. Yeah, mm. that's fair. That's probably where a lot of it came from. Because, I mean, like the gunshots and everything would have been easy enough to do. Yeah, I don't know. That seems very expensive. Yeah, I was thinking that. In the film, I can't quite remember, um, has he written the final book in the Misery Saga and that's the one that's about to be published? So, or is he writing the final one? Because and that's be- the draft because sheet. I because I watched it very recently, and I will say of the, the all the ones I watched this week, this one was my favorite. I had a feeling it would yeah. be. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the movie, he has written the final misery book, mm. and while he's in like her house being cared for, mm. that's when she gets it to read it. Like, it, like in the like, satchel? It re- no, it, release, it releases, like, coincidentally at the oh, same time. and she buys it from the shop. Yeah. yeah Got yeah. it. And it's the draft of, like, his next book that's unrelated to the Misery series mm. that he's just finished and is in his satchel. And, like, kills Misery off, and that's when Annie Wilkes snaps and is like, no, you have to rewrite the ending. Right? Yeah, that, that in the one that had been released. See, something, <laughs> something this reminded me of, uh, and I mentioned this to my mom uh, when I rewatched it for this pod, and she laughed. Uh, there's this author, Sue Grafton, who sadly is no longer with us, um, but she wrote, she wrote this like crime thriller series where each book was a letter of the alphabet and it would be like A is for this, B is for that kind of thing. Um, and it was like these, this same ongoing story with the same character uh, and she died while writing Zed. So the 26th book never got published and my mum was fuming. (laughs) What an absolute blue balls. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, how dare that poor woman die? I know. And watching this just reminded me of that. It's horrible of me to laugh, but uh, I just think that's like so poetic. (laughs) Yeah, rough. Yeah. So essentially it's this famous author, Paul Sheldon, has this car accident um, on his way to this like remote hotel to like write this on his way from the hotel oh from the hotel sorry yeah and uh crashes his car wakes up in uh in a bed in annie annie wilkes house who is this like crazed fan he's never met before with like broken legs and a dislocated shoulder Mm -hmm. and he's obviously got a lengthy recovery ahead of him and she starts off being super nice and yeah like playing this nurse to him and looking after him feeding him all that kind of thing uh what's the first instance when she snaps is it when she reads the draft and there's like profanity in it? Uh, I think so, yeah. And that's when he first like sees that she's like... Because I think that's when she's feeding him like soup. Oh, she, yeah, She just yeah. goes on this like horrible, like huge rant about how, you know, she doesn't talk like that. How how would it be if mm. she went and started talking like that? And she's like throwing this like soup around, it lands on him. Yeah, yeah. And then, she, and then she walks out of the room without cleaning it up. What a horrible nurse. <laughs> well, you know what else I love is when she tells him to like burn his own work and yeah. she like douses the papers in lighter fluid but then she's like splashing some on the bed yeah. while she's like talking to him i like that because it's almost like it's it's a like a veil a very thinly veiled threat mm. like if you don't burn this i'm going to burn you yeah. but not outright saying it yeah yeah it's uh very creepy and um also <laughs> Also think it's kind of funny she's got a pet pig called Misery. <laughs> and when she like lets the pig in the room and then she's like oinking and acting like a pig. Oh, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's fucking weird. I mean that's just that's just another like aspect of her character of like, all right, here's this just sweet, almost childlike, mm. you know, woman. Who almost then, like an innocence. Yeah, who then like just to get the like complete contrast of mm. the crazy bitch that she is. Yeah. And when uh he doesn't have a catheter, but he's like peeing in a <laughs> bottle. 
as she takes it from him, closes the lid, and she's like, oh, and another thing. And she's like talking to him, and she's like real animated, so she's like sloshing around this bodily urine in front of him. I just like that reveal, because like this, the whole scene, she's standing at the window talking, and she has like this whole monologue of something. Yeah, And yeah. then it's revealed, and he's like, all right, I'm done. And like pulls yeah. out the pee bottle, and it's like... The scene that's, keeps going. That's creepy. Like, she was just talking in this room while he's trying to take a leak. Yeah, yeah. Um, Paul is pretty smart. Like, he, you know, stashes the pills in, like, that slit in the mattress. And yep. um, the way that he, like, forms this little pouch out of the paper and he, like, opens them up and puts all the powder in. Yep. It just makes it so much more, like, gut-wrenching when that fucking glass of wine <laughs> that he spikes gets knocked over when they have that dinner. Yeah, it's like he's gone to so much effort. It's like the like fucking Dick Halloran and the Shining. Like they spend a lot of the time in the movie yeah. building this up of like, all right, he's got to, you know, stash him every now and mm. then. Gives devote some time to that. Finally this plane is paying off and then a pure coincidence. Yeah. Like fucks him. Yeah, yeah. That was really nice. But this whole film um builds really great tension. Like I even love when he I think it's the first time he gets out of his room when he's in like a wheelchair. Um, and he knocks the table with the penguin ornament, but yep. he catches it before it hits the ground. And then later, when she's like, oh, I know you've been out of your room because the penguin ornament was facing the wrong direction. Yeah. That was cool. Cause it just I mean, shows that, how like OCD she is. Yeah, okay, there you go. I was about to say that. Um, I do like those sequences too, where he's out of the room and she like starts coming home and like that builds the tension there of like, oh, fuck. Like, mm. right, switch to her walking in. Him like fucking just rushing around like, all right, pain yeah. aside, broken legs, fucking yeah. jump into the fucking wheelchair. Mm. Or when he gets like caught in the doorway yeah. as well, things like yeah. that. I also love how she, when she comes back, uh, one of the times she leaves and she's like depressed and it's raining and she says, oh, it gives her the blues. Mm-hmm. And then she shows like the unloaded pistol. <laughs> but then that sets up more of like a double bluff when the sheriff gets shot at the top of the stairs to the basement. Because he gets shot with a fucking shotgun. shotgun. yeah. So it's like, oh shit. So, you know, when you were on edge because she's like, oh, I might put bullets in this revolver. Next minute, she's got a fucking shotgun. Well, it's an American farmhouse. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, some I mean, of the- that, that is literally like Chekhov's gun, right? Yeah. <laughs> like show the gun early in the film and then use it later. Yeah. I I, I just like that it's worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, of course, that, that iconic moment of putting the block wood between his ankles and smashing him with a sledgehammer. The hobbling. That was the only scene from the movie that I knew about before mm, going in. Yeah. So that kind of, not ruined it for me, but like it didn't have as much of an impact when I watched the movie. Yeah. But fuck, that's good. <laughs> well, I like that they show it. They don't oh, yeah. have her like swinging and then cutting away to his face. It was like, you see the fucking foot bend. and Yeah. Well, I know in the original book, instead of doing that, she like cuts it off with a hacksaw or yeah. with an axe with or something. With an axe, I yeah. think, yeah. So I think the change that they did was good. Like I'm pretty sure they did it to avoid mm. gore, to like make it oh, easier yeah. for people to watch and to like release and stuff. Yeah. But I think it's worse. Like I was thinking that. Like, in, I don't know, there's just something about instead of cutting it off, that almost seems too like absurd or too mm. horrible. It's almost like surgical. Yeah, exactly. But instead it's like, a sledgehammer just breaking your foot sideways. It's more torturous. Yeah. Because I feel, you said it right with like a more surgical approach. I feel like if you're severing a body part, it sounds like obviously it'd be gory, but it sounds clean. Whereas if like the body is still intact, but the bones are shattered. Yeah. Like that, it's, and because he's like just recovered or he's recovering mm. as well from the car accident, it's like, nope, back to square one. <laughs> Yeah, and I want to say too the, the the practical effects that they do for his legs, especially when you oh, first the see bruising. them. 
That is very good. It looks yeah. grotesque. Yeah, and That's like it. all inflamed as yeah, well. Yeah, it's like an aspect I love about the movie. I might be misremembering, but I think when she like breaks his ankles with a sledgehammer as well, she's like, God, I love you. Afterwards, <laughs> which just makes it more disturbing. Uh, yeah, just, just fucking creepy bitch. Yeah. My favorite character though was um, Buster. The, the sheriff who gets yeah, shot at the end. Yeah, I like he, the dynamic with his wife. Yeah, I think I think uh, the wife was Alex's favorite character. Mm. Just like the bit where they're in the car, she like <laughs> grabs his knee and he's like, when we're in this car, um, you're, you're the sheriff's deputy, not my wife. Yeah, yeah, that was fucking good. It's just good. so good. He's like, his quips and his like, just sarcasm. It's, <laughs> and I it's, like, it's who I aim to be when I'm that age. Yeah, it's he's very likable. And I like in that scene when they're in the car, he stops, gets out and like falls in the snow. And he's, she's like, checks on him. And he's like, no, I'm enjoying myself. Yeah. Like, waist deep in snow. <laughs> but I also love that, like, not only is he as close to the comic relief as you can get in that movie, but he's also, like, a good detective. He solves, essentially, the case. He mm. finds him. He's By actually, reading the book, right? Yeah. Like, he go, reads the book. He notices a quote and then recognizes her from a newspaper. And so he's, like, really good at his job. Oh, yeah, because she says that quote. On trial as like final yeah. words or something because yeah. she was like acquitted for like infanticide or something and I love after the draft he was working on is burned and he like when, when there's the final showdown he's like shoving the ashes in her mouth he's yeah. like eat it till you choke <laughs> you sick twisted fuck like the passion in James Cairn's performance was unreal mm-hmm. and I like that she kind of like collapses and hits her head on the typewriter I think that's like so poetic, but I don't like the like final scare when she comes at him again afterwards and he like yeah. knocks her out with that ornament. I would have preferred it if the typewriter is what killed her because it's just the irony of it. <laughs> yeah. Moving on. Moving on. What's next? The Mist, perhaps? The Mist, 2007. This is probably my favorite film on this list. And that was surprising to me because okay. it's a very, from what I've seen, divisive film uh, mm. due to, I think questionable writing and god-awful cgi i think are are my two biggest gripes with this movie okay i mean i didn't think the cgi was too bad not the tentacle going after like the fucking bag boy yeah i i thought that was all right okay i thought that seems a bit long like i would have liked just a glimpse of it because that's what i like about the mist is because they're in this supermarket you know shrouded uh, in this like fog that you can't see through, it's kind of that element of what you don't see is scarier. But I did feel that that scene was a bit too long. Okay. Well, it's weird because like they have awful CGI, and mm. I'll use that tentacle monster as an example because that like there's the the one scene where it's literally dragging Norman into the mist mm. looks awful CGI. It's terrible. Mm. But then later they come back and see the tentacle on the ground, and that's practical, and that looks so good. Yeah. So like. Yeah. Like, just don't, don't use the CGI, man. Just figure something else out. Use puppets. Use animatronics. Yeah, you can't do true. it. You've got it there. That's a fair point. Um, they also made a TV show of this. I got halfway through uh, the first season and had to stop. It was so bad. <laughs> Good Lord. But the reason, like, largely why this is my favorite on this list is the acting. I think there's some vehement performances here. And Thomas Jane is like this um, protective father is incredible, I think. But this was quite a long movie, and it was adapted from a short story. So this is another instance where they probably took some liberties uh, with the adaptation. But written and directed by Frank Darabont, who we mentioned before, mm-hmm. now did he, the Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile, actually. Yeah, and The Walking Dead. Yeah, like it's got Carol 
and Dale, Andrea, and Dale. I think that's probably it. Yeah, it's also, I mean, got, it's also got Andre Brail. I think it's I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, Captain Holt from Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is yeah, just so funny to see. That was funny. I mean, he was still like kind of comical in this, but not like deliberately. Mm. <laughs> it's just the kind of character he was. Um, it was made on a budget of eighteen million and made fifty seven point four million at the box office. So not too bad. Not too bad. Mm-hmm. This was initially intended to be black and white. Uh, apparently, I've read in interviews with Frank Darabont. Yep. I think because it's got that like classic, like fifties B grade monster vibe. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense because I think some of the influences were like the old creature features, like Night of the Living Dead, mm. maybe even Dawn of the Dead, like stuck literally yeah. in a shopping center. That makes sense. Yeah, and I mean this is kind of like not so much horror, but more like a disaster sci-fi film with like Lovecraftian monsters. Yeah, that that's that's an aspect. Like, uh, don't get me wrong, I don't hate this movie. Like, mm. I, I like this movie, especially rewatching it. Um, I liked it more than I thought I did. Yeah, okay. I just don't like those small parts of it. Yeah, no, that's uh, fair. That's but fair. The, the design of these monsters look fucking cool. Like, mm. they're very Lovecrafty and they're very, like, taking things that we might be scared of in real life, like, I don't know, <laughs> spiders or octopus, yeah. squid things or, like, giant flying things, Bugs. and then just twisting them so that, all right, a tentacle, kind of weird, kind of creepy, but when mm. it opens up and it has spikes and, like, a weird mouth yeah. thing, that's, that's scary. Yeah, there's... You said it right. There's something in this film that everyone is afraid of. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of social commentary in it as well on like human nature, like with the tension between the main character David and his neighbor, um, the like distrust of the government with like the military mm-hmm. personnel being stuck in the shopping center as well. And, and obviously like the religious extremists. So a lot of these yeah. conflicting ideologies going on. I'd say that's probably... Other than the supernatural part of it, that's the biggest like thing about this movie is like mm. what happens when a bunch of people from different backgrounds or ideology ideologies are trapped into one place, and yeah, thrown into this awful situation. How they're going to react? Yeah, and I mean, David even says that in the film. He's like, if you take a bunch of people, <laughs> yeah. put them in the dark, and you scare the shit out of them, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, it's like it's yeah, just surmised it perfectly. And I also like that it's this small town, obviously in Maine, <laughs> where like everyone knows each other because it makes the deaths more meaningful. Mm, it's like not some random guy who died. It's like, oh, that was, you know, fucking Norman the Bag Boy or yeah, other, exactly. anyone else. They've all got these like personal histories. Like um, one of the chicks that works in the grocery store like dated one of the military guys. Um, one of the like elderly women used to teach like one of the mm-hmm. like mechanic hicks that works there. So it's like everyone knows each other and they all have these like intertwining um, personal histories, which I really enjoy. And I'll just say it now. This has got to be one of the most affecting endings to a film that I've ever seen. Man, there's got to be something about this week of the movies I watched. They A lot of them had just depressing endings. Yeah, I mean, this... Like, I'm surprised that they kept it for the film because a lot of people in, like, the production probably would have argued that, you know, they didn't want to end it on such a downer. But, like, I've seen this film numerous times and even re-watching it this week, it, like, almost got me. I was like, <laughs> I'm not even a dad and it's hard to watch. Yeah, it's, like, god damn, it's a hard to watch scene. Yeah. Should we... Should we yeah, go for it. Leave go it for, for the listeners? Okay. We, we got to if we're talking about it this much. Okay. So, The Mist ends with... David, the the main character, and his son, uh, a woman he meets in the shop, and then this elderly couple in his Land Cruiser driving through the mist. They've got a bunch of fuel. They just want to go as far south as they can, see if they can make it out to the other side. 
they run out of fuel and they're still deep in the mist. They've got a revolver with them that uh, only has four bullets with the five of them in the car. Uh, after some in, some intense stares at each other uh, and an eerie silence, you see four gunshots go <laughs> off outside the vehicle and then just David screaming. Uh, turns out he shot everyone in the car, including his own son, and then like two minutes later, the military rock up. Yep. And, uh Flame throwing the the monsters away. They've <laughs> the, got the rescue mist, trucks of the people. Mist is disappearing. Yeah, and the mist starts to disappear, and yeah, you're just left there gutted at, at what he just had to do. Yeah, that's it's it's tense. It's an intense moment, but especially because uh, like just before he does it, the kid wakes up, and the kid's like looking at him. Yeah, so it was like he had to look his kid in his eye in his eyes and fucking shoot him. Yeah, and everyone else. Fucking horrible, and uh, it's probably the most emotional film on this list as well. Mm, for sure. I also love the moment, probably one of my favorites in this film, when they tie the rope to the guy's waist and yep. he like tries to get as far out as he can. Oh no, he's getting the he's shotgun. Tr- he's trying to get the a shotgun truck. from a car. Yeah, and then it's they're like feeding it through the door, and then it starts like whizzing violently. It like goes up to the top of the door <laughs> like something's yanked him in the air. Um, and then as they start like reeling this limp rope back, it's like bloodied, and then you know they just find the legs. Bot- bottom half of it. Yeah, <laughs> that was sick. Yeah, that was cool. Um, I also love when they go to the pharmacy and there's like the victims cocooned in the web. It reminded me of aliens. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Right and there. and then the spiders have acid web, which reminded me of like xenomorph blood. Just creepy, just creepy interdimensional. Yeah, that is well, that is like what they say it is in the movies and interdimensional creatures mm. coming through from like a military experiment gone wrong, which is very yeah. like Stranger Things esque. So they. What do they say? Like they accidentally opened a portal. Essentially, yeah. World. yeah. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> it's a cool yeah. concept. Yeah. I like the double bluff when it's nighttime and they're like building up the bags of dog food against the glass to try and like create this barrier and the bugs start like landing mm-hmm. and they're all just like curious inspecting them. And then obviously you get this like big bat looking thing come and like take it away. Yeah. That was really cool because the, the like bugs were creepy enough as it is but like seemed relatively harmless mm-hmm. and uh yeah then you you get one of those like bats in the store and they're fucking shooting at it <laughs> setting it on fire it's just wreaking havoc mm-hmm. um it, it's kind of harrowing how the, you get the chick that gets stung and she dies mm-hmm. a guy gets like severely burned um and he's like begging to be shot yeah to be like put out of his misery there's like another lady that overdoses on pills some of the soldiers like hang themselves and it's just like there's a big chunk in the middle of this film that just shows everyone giving up hope yeah like like i said depressing and that's kind of a mm. i guess because that carries through the end at the end they give up hope and decide to end it like you run out of fuel immediately first thought yeah like, time to kill ourselves yeah yeah Which, fucking hell and the mother or like the wife is still at home because mm-hmm. i know like after they leave uh in the end they like swing by his house see if she's right mm-hmm. but the broken window that the tree fell through into his like art studio is how like the spiders got in and like yeah. cocooned her. Um, that's also like <laughs> fucking horrible. <laughs> yeah, well, because then he's like guilty because he's like, well, I was meant to fix that window and yeah. I didn't and now she's dead because of it. Yeah, yeah. But so I mean, she probably would have died anyway. A lot of, yeah, like I think that and a lot of these other scenes in this film are just kind of um, an exploration of the impact of our choices. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, it's interesting looking at this film as like a disaster movie as opposed to like sci-fi horror 
And it's like, what would you do in that situation? Would you stay? Would you like follow the, the religious leader and just like, you know, believe that this is like judgment day and let, you know, the higher beings decide if you're worthy to live or not. Or would you like take the logical route of the neighbor who tries to like start his own little crusade of people that are just going to like wait it out to be rescued. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting how you see these little factions break out. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned all the religious stuff. Cause I want to, I want to talk about that for a, for a quick second and see what you think about it. Okay. So you have this religious lady. What is it? Mrs. Comedy, comedy, Com- comedy, comedy, sure. <laughs> comedy. I don't know. Mrs. Religious lady. We'll call her. Yeah. Throughout the film, she just starts like spewing these like biblical verses, and she's very like old Puritan. Mm. Like this is Judgment Day. This is God. She's hardcore. Like yeah, God punishing us. Um, she's never wrong. Like she, the, the the first thing I think she says is, "If you go out into that mist, you'll die." Okay, the guy goes out, he dies. Mm. She says, "All right, they're gonna come at night and take us while we're sleeping." The bugs come at night and take them while they're sleeping. Yeah. Uh, and then she says, "Oh." Like when she gets really crazy, she starts saying, "All right, well, God's demanding a blood sacrifice." Mm. She gets shot, and then like dies in a literal crucifixion pose. I think. Yeah. And then they leave, so you don't actually see what happens there. And then only after he kills like his son, which is who she says needs to be sacrificed, mm. the mist ends. So she is never wrong in that movie. Yeah, they kind of portray her as this like prophet, but. I th- like I don't want to offend any of our <laughs> listeners who may be deeply religious, but I feel like the Bible is vague enough, kind of like horoscopes, that yeah. <laughs> like however a situation unfolds will still seem relevant. Because I mean, if you're if you're trapped in a shopping center with this mist full of strange creatures, like of course people are gonna die. So the yeah. fact that it just happens the way that she says it would. It kind of it's like confirmation bias. <laughs> yeah, but I just I don't know. I think it's an interesting way to look at it. You can either look at it from a purely scientific point of view of, yep, this is the military experiment gone wrong. Mm. Uh, it ends because the military takes re- like retakes control of the situation and whatever. Yeah. Or you can look at it from that religious point of view and think, okay, this actually is a like religious movie. Mm. It is the judgment day that she's talking about, and then it is only through sacrifice that it ends. I don't believe it, but I think that's an interesting way to look at the movie. Yeah, that is good because it kind of shows the the main group, the ones like trying to escape at the end, uh, like discrediting her and just labeling her as a nut throughout mm. the film. But then, yeah, it's like, oh, actually. <laughs> yeah, like if you think she's about it. She's not wrong. Yeah, she's not wrong. Nothing she says is wrong. Mm. I don't know. She's just like very uh, intimidating about yeah. how she gets her message across. Also, take the boy. Yeah, also, that actress does a very good job of making me hate that character. Yeah. The reason why I enjoy this film so much, I think is because of that exploration of human nature. Because mm-hmm. I, like, like I said, how um, The Night Eats the World was was my favourite zombie film, probably after Shaun of the Dead, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, is because it like explores, again, human nature or like the effects of loneliness in the setting of a zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Those are my favourite types of horror films where it's like a drama wrapped in the world of horror. Okay. Which is, yeah, why I, I, mean, I love The Mist. Yeah, because you like um, like movies where it's just social commentary and, I don't know, people reacting in a room. That's why I think you'd like The Circle. So yeah, I've, I've give had that, that a suggested. Okay. By me, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah, cool. Um, well, we've got one more film that we want to go in. Shall we explore the final one, my friend? Let's do it.
Mm-hmm. And that would be... 1408. Yes. Another 2000 film. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Another 2007 film is what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, directed by Michael Hufstrom. Uh, who I believe also did the right with Anthony Hopkins. Yes, I believe he did. Um, written by Matt Greenberg, Scott Alexander, and Larry Karaszewski. So, hell of a team credited there. Mm-hmm. Starring John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. So, some some big names for this Heavy one. hitters. Who in, also in, reunited for Cell. Okay. But I don't believe if you've seen Cell. No, I didn't watch that one. Another yeah. Stephen King movie. It was all right. Okay. It was all right. It's not great. I... I uh, would watch it once, but the the ending was pretty disappointing, and I believe vastly different to the book. Okay, but yeah, this is uh, this was made on a budget of twenty five million and made one hundred and thirty three million at the box office. So this this was a pretty successful one. Yeah, one of the more successful ones on this list, which makes sense, I guess, just because of pure star power. Like it was probably the height of John Cusack's career. Mm. Samuel Jackson, his whole life has been the height of his career. Yeah, does <laughs> he say motherfucker in this? Ah, oh, I don't think so. I think mean, he says it's an evil fucking room. Yeah, sure. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's his... close enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice. This is kind of like Shining-esque, but takes it a step further because it's contained in a single room. This, and... this is like a, a good mix of The Shining and Misery. Like, Yeah, true, actually. This uh, is another one where the main character is a writer. Yeah, a, a writer, an author who is trapped in a room, mm. uh, just happens to be by the room itself this time instead of some crazy fan. Like, similar to... The guy, what's his name in fucking Misery? Paul. Paul, Paul Sheldon. Yeah, similar to him, like his career has just become writing books that he doesn't care about, just mm. like for the readers. It's interesting looking at it from that point of view as well, because I love that scene uh, from a technical perspective when Mike is on the phone to his agent and he's in like this bright, warm apartment and the agent is in this like cool, dark office. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of that contrast between the writer who is passionate about the work to a degree mm-hmm. and then the agent who cares more about the money so you've got like this warm affectionate side versus this kind of cold clinical side mm-hmm. and i thought that was a really interesting way to look at something um like art being profitable and viewed as more as a brand yeah like doesn't doesn't really matter about the art once you get to a certain point it's just purely for the money yeah some interesting things about this film. Uh, I've read that the title, 1408, was inspired by the numbers adding up to 13. Okay. And there's that scene of the film when they're in the elevator and he points out there's no 13th floor. Is that, that, that's heard, a real thing. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that being a thing in, in the real world. Is that because of it being just bad luck? Yeah, just unlucky to have a floor 13. Like, yeah. obviously not every building follows that, I don't mm. think, but... There are definitely like hotels and stuff that don't have a 13th floor. That's funny. Which is stupid because they have a 13th floor just because <laughs> just they call it, you know, a rose by any other name is just as sweet. A fucking mm. hotel room on any other floor is just as fucking haunted. And this film had three alternate endings to the director's cut, which is what's on the DVD. Yeah, very interesting. I, so, what, I don't know the third one, so do we, do we want to go through the different endings? Yeah, because I've seen two of them. So <laughs> I, I must have only seen this film like once or twice before I rewatched it for this pod but I must not have watched the DVD that I bought <laughs> before because when I watched this, this week just gone, I had not seen that ending before, but I'd read about it. Yeah, so the one the one on the DVD is the director's cut mm. uh, and then there's the theatrical cut, theatrical cut and I don't actually know the other one. So the one on the DVD, the director's cut is the one that ends with Mike burning the room and he dies in the fire, mm-hmm. and then the final scene is his funeral, 
Whereas before that, the ending I remember is he sets the room on fire, is rescued by the fire department, and then the final scene is him and his ex-wife like unpacking his possessions mm-hmm. in an apartment and they find the voice recorder which he replays so she can hear their dead daughter's voice. Yeah. And that's how she's like, oh my God, it was real. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's another version where it's that same ending, but she doesn't hear the voice. So it's oh, like okay. he's insane. Or he's oh, like, that's a, only he can hear it. Well, that's a weird ending then. Yeah. So I that's the, that's like the one that, I didn't though. know about. Um, and I can't remember the other one. There's a fourth one, I think. You said there were three. Three alternate endings to the director's cut. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. Well, well, which one do you prefer? I prefer the first one I remember seeing, which is when it ends with him surviving. They're in the apartment, play the voice recorder, and they hear her daughter's voice. So okay. she knows he wasn't lying. We are we are in agreement on that then. That's good. His whole ordeal in the in the room and throughout the whole movie. Mm. Like the room is trying to get him to commit suicide. Yeah. And like yeah. there's a really nice scene where, not nice, really cool scene where it, like he almost reaches a breaking point and he's just walking around the room seeing like nooses hanging everywhere. Like his, yeah. his own dead body like falls down in front of him on a noose. But he's just like numb to it at that point. And I like how he gets the calls on the phone and he answers and this chick's like, are you ready to check out? Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, like suggesting him to... Yeah, so the whole movie is this room trying to get him to commit suicide. Mm. And then it, at the end of the director's cut, he does. Like, sure, he takes down the evil room with him. Yeah. But the room still succeeds because it gets him to commit suicide. It's kind of a stalemate. Yeah, it's like it kind of sends the wrong message. You know, whereas the other one's like, all right, he takes down the room, but in the end, he still won because he didn't let the room take him. Mm, mm. I kind of see that, though, as like a redemption of his character because throughout the film, he's not likable. He's like this arrogant writer, somewhat of a broken man because of his daughter dying and his wife leaving him. Mm. But well, he, his wife didn't leave him. He left his wife. Oh, okay. Uh, but he kind of makes like the ultimate sacrifice of like destroying something evil with him alongside it for the benefit of others. Yeah. What is your favourite hallucination? Oh, I think it's probably... In terms of, like, the feeling of it, mm. the hallucination, like, the whole hallucination where he's hugging his daughter and she turns to ash. Yeah. Because that's gut-wrenching. Like, yeah, hey, that's sad. Like, let's take the saddest... Like, the room's like, let's take the saddest thing that's ever happened to you and rub it in your face. Let's gi- give you your daughter back, give you a moment with your daughter, yeah. and then just crush her into ash. Because she, like, dies in his arms first and goes limp, and then she disintegrates. Yeah. So, that yeah. that's, like, the most gut-wrenching, like, hallucination. Mm. But I think... The scene where he opens the like the mini fridge, and it's got Samuel L. Jackson's character in there. Yeah, uh, it's like, oh, how is the room treating you? And he's like, you know, goddamn well how the room yeah, is treating you. Okay. And then it shows it from like the outside, I guess, point of view, mm. where he just starts attacking the fridge, and it's just a mini fridge. Yeah. So he's like going crazy on this fucking mini fridge. <laughs> it's yeah. a good scene. I think my favorite hallucination is when he calculates how many steps away the next window should be, <laughs> climbs out the window, and while he's like standing on the ledge, hugging this brick wall, there is no other window in the whole yeah. side of the building. That is, I like that. I also like that it kind of mixes CGI and practical effects, like the, the melting phone mm. at the end. Like, he is obviously a skeptic in the movie. Mm. And so his first, like, you know, port of call to like, once he starts experiencing stuff is, oh, I've been like, late, like he laced the, I think it's rum with something. Like he's like he thinks he's been dosed. Oh, that's so he's like he's yeah, trying like to explain all this stuff. Oh yeah, mm. it might have been cognac. That's smart. Which I like too because I used to work with a guy at uh, a certain fast food joint mm. who partook in the hallucinogenics, and he was saying his experience with like LSD was very similar to like 
um, John Cusack's experience with the painting of like it's just, mm. he's, like this guy was telling Immerse me he was he was staring at a painting of like a boat on water, and he was just staring at it and like the waves were actually moving and wow. like, I don't know that just seems so cool and so it's nice to see like that yeah is an ex- like a representation of dosing. I mean, people like microdose LSD. For creative results, sometimes. <laughs> Makes sense, but I probably wouldn't do it. <laughs> Open up your third eye. Um, what I also like, I mean, yeah, suspecting that the alcohol is drugged is cool because it kind of like gives you a moment of relief. Like, oh, he's getting somewhere. Like, it's not actually all happening. Mm. But this film is longer than I remember being. <laughs> and there's a big chunk in the middle where you've got this red herring of him being called back to the surfing accident where he yeah. comes off the board and he's gets revived um and it shows like moments of his life outside of the room like days after the fact yeah and then like that room in the hospital or wherever it is ends up being destroyed the post office yeah yeah. that was sick those practical effects and And it's got like the red brick on the outside i also think that's very like sudden like he it 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 does spend like a a long amount of time of him in the outside world getting out oh it was all a dream Mm. and then all of a sudden he's in a post office and then bam like he's just they start destroying it and he's just instantly back at the hotel. Yeah, they like rip away the plaster of the walls and shit, mm. pull up the carpet. That was such a cool scene. And I just love how long they let that play out like before that because it's like, shit, he actually has made it out because it shows him like getting his life back together. It's not just one of those typical woke up and it was all a dream thing mm. and it like happens suddenly. They, really let, they let it choice. go along just enough to start believing it and it's yeah. like, nah, think again, motherfucker. Yeah, I really liked that. And uh, I like how at the start when he's requesting to stay in that room and Samuel Jackson's like, no, you, you can't stay in that room. How he says no one has stayed longer than an hour. And the first thing, like supernatural element of the room is the clock radio starts playing a song. And then like later it shows like counting down from an hour. Mm-hmm. I like when he, he finally survives the hour. It just rewinds and starts again. Yeah. And everything just kind of intensifies. But yeah, it's a a really good adaptation and I think it's largely regarded as one of the better ones post-2000. Well, that's definitely like uh, reflected in its, you know, box office Mm. that it made. Yeah. Um, Well, we've talked about all the movies now. I guess let's talk about sort of some similar themes or something that Stephen King appears to have in all of his book slash movies. Yeah. Because something that I noticed is obviously a lot of, you know, the ones that we watch where Mm. the main character is an author or a writer and I love how in both in 1408 and in Misery, yep. both of them have like this obsession or whatever you want to call it, supernatural, um, not supernatural, like superstition about like a cigarette. Mm. Like in Misery, he he's quit smoking and he'll only have one after he's finished a book. Yeah, and yeah. And then um, John Cusack's character in 1408 also quit smoking, mm. but always keeps on on him as a superstition. Yeah, so yeah. So it's like interesting to see that. Also like that that line um, when he's in the office with Samuel Jackson and he's like, no, no, I don't smoke. Uh, would you like a drink? <laughs> yeah, I said I was a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I also love how in, I think, almost all the ones that we've watched here, uh, fuck, it might just be the same two, maybe mm. three, like addiction is also a very big part of them. Yeah, like an unhealthy obsession. Unhealthy with obsession. Something. Like Christine was is the most apt example of that where he does yeah. become addicted and obsessed with this, this car. Yeah. And then misery it's shown that like uh his addiction i think stephen king's even like come out and said that like the whole of misery when he wrote it 
is an analogy of his addiction to drugs and alcohol mm. and he was being held captive yeah. in Annie Wilkes's house is, sure. an ex- is an example of him being held by the drugs and alcohol. Or even like Annie's addiction or obsession like with the character. Yeah, ex- yeah, that too. As well. Films that we didn't go into that are Stephen King adaptations that I enjoyed were um, Children of the Corn, the first one. I didn't realise he wrote that. So the countless sequels are hella excessive. Um, the Dead Zone. Cronenberg adaptation and uh, Secret Window, which caught me off guard and how how uh, creative that was. I mean, it was a bit of a predictable ending, but uh, cool plot and it was very good acting from Johnny Depp. Maybe in a decade we'll see another really good one <laughs> or just another fucking remake. Well, I think I've, I think they've got some some upcoming ones. One that I'm interested to see and they haven't announced like anything really to do with it is mm. one called The Tommy Knockers. Oh, James Wan. James Wan yeah, and, the, and the producer of. The, the new It movies mm. are going to do that. So that'll be interesting. And I was reading like a bit of a plot summary. Yeah. That's going to be a weird movie because it's about like this alien spacecraft that mm. like crashes in a small town, probably yeah. Maine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then they're like, I think it releases this like poisonous gas that mm. turns people into the aliens. Yeah. And they like and shed they get, skin. And yeah. I think they teeth. get like, they start getting like really smart and inventive, but mm. not creative. It's like a hive mind. Yeah. Yeah. So I've that, seen the original. It's, it's dated effects, but okay. it's a cool story. Like the, I'm interested in that concept. So I'll, I'll be excited for that one. I also saw that one of the other countless remakes in production is uh, The Running Man, which uh, apparently the original film was vastly different to the book. Like and with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah. Is that the one? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the game show kind of thing, but um, the film is set in like an arena, mm. whereas the book is like all over the city. Okay. And uh, this one's being adapted by Edgar Wright. Oh my. Who did uh, the Cornetto trilogy and um, Baby Driver. Yeah, which okay. I'll be keen to see. So there you go. There's there's our upcoming excited mm. movies we're waiting for. Um, should we mention our schedule change moving forward? With, sure. Uh, yeah, the I, rostering of our episode. Not gonna lie, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> so what what's the new what's the new setup gonna be? Yeah. So as you know, our current format is uh, a film that's pre two thousands, followed by a film post two thousands, and then a topic episode like this one. So because we're scraping the barrel with some of our topics, and uh, we've got heaps of films that we want to discuss uh, from now on. Uh, given that this is episode twenty, we're going to be doing a topic episode every five episodes. So you'll get a lot more uh, fleshed out reviews of individual films moving forward. Which I like because, especially with this episode, mm. I found myself wanting to talk about each individual episode longer. Yeah. Well, I feel like I haven't looked at the time of it, this episode so far, but I feel like this is probably our longest one to it, date. It's long. <laughs> Which is fair. I mean, it's a big topic and uh, each of these films have a lot of moving parts that um, are worth mentioning. So hope you're cool with that. If not... Oh, well, it's our podcast and yeah. <laughs> we're doing it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, if everyone hates it, I'm sure we could adapt. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. So, nice. yeah, thanks for sticking with us for this longest episode yet. Yeah, hopefully absolutely. It was, hopefully it wasn't too much of a slog. Hopefully uh, found some interesting interesting point of views for some Stephen King adaptations. Mm-hmm. Yes. Anyway, you can catch us, I believe, every Friday at 5 p.m. on Spotify or any streaming service, whatever, whatever you want. Uh, yeah, so catch us on socials. We'll be right back.